Well, have you ever done something for someone, and I mean really helped them in a big way? And then you have a friend for life. You have somebody who, no matter what you need, you know that they will be there for you. Maybe even you saved their life or something like that. And you know when you call them up one day, say, hey, can you help me move? Do you know they're going to be like, help you move? Of course I can help you move. I wouldn't even be here if it were not for you. Of course I will. And so make the transition here with me. We've been talking about an exhaustive look at what God has done for us through Jesus Christ in the gospel, saving us from sin. Wouldn't it then follow, logically, reasonably, that we should then serve him with everything that we have? Serve him with our very lives. He saved us from spiritual death. Shouldn't we then serve him with our lives? I'm not talking about in some distorted, guilt-driven, debtor's ethic kind of thing where we're trying to pay God back, but instead it's an attitude of the heart that has such joy and gratitude for what God has done for us that we joyfully serve him with everything we have because it's worth it and because he's good, and because of everything that he's done for us in Christ. What does that actually look like? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Paul is going to tell us all about that today. Head over to Romans chapter 12. If you're visiting with us, we are making our way through the book of Romans, and we have just hacked our way through the theological jungle of Romans 9 through 11. We did it, everybody. Great job. And now we are in the open waters of chapter 12. Last time we ended chapter 11. Look at, again, the end of chapter 11. This is very appropriate that we start this way because Paul left off just considering everything that God has done for him, and it led him to be on his face in worship and gratitude for who God is. Look at 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has, been, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. You would read that and you would think, okay, cool. Romans is done. I mean, what a doxology that is, that, that, that we should be left at the throne of God on our faces before him. And just worship of what he has done for us. But what does that worship actually translate to, right? Worship is one of those churchy words. What does a life of worship actually translate to? In other words, what are we saved for? What are we supposed to be doing? Do you ever ask that as a Christian? Like, what am I actually supposed to be doing here? What's my job on a Monday morning? What, what's my job? And Paul's going to tell us that. We're turning a major transitional corner here. This is now, he's going to tell us what to do. In nerdy theological language, it means the indicative before the imperative. It means he tells us everything we're supposed to know about the gospel and then the imperative, and then he tells us what to do. Paul could have started Romans with this letter and should have, could have said, hey, do this, church at Rome, thanks, Paul, but he didn't. He told us all about the gospel for 11 chapters, and now he starts to tell us what that is to do. Look at the very first verse. Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says up front, therefore, one of the biggest therefores you will see in the New Testament. I don't know why ESV buried the therefore, but they did. Since therefore, I appeal to you, brothers. Appeal, it might be a, a little bit weak, maybe more strongly urges them or implores them, pleads with them, exhorts them. If you're rolling King James this morning, he beseeches thee to consider this. Guys, in light of therefore, in light of everything, 11 chapters worth, therefore, the foundation of what everything that I have been saying to you, God's mercy in Jesus Christ. The mercy that Paul's referring to is the mercy of God in salvation. He saved you, church. So therefore, therefore, I beg you, I beseech you, I exhort you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, a couple things in a Jewish mind, when they heard those two words, living sacrifice, caused their mind to explode. The first one is sacrifice. And now it's like, okay, well, you mean we have to go back to sacrifices? You know, I, I had us read Leviticus 1 for a reason. I know some of you were chuckling with entrails and all of that stuff. But that's what the Jewish mind thinks of when it thinks of a sacrifice. It thinks of an animal that has been killed and sacrificed at an, author, an altar. And it thinks of blood and guts and all of that stuff. And so the idea of a living sacrifice makes no sense to a Jewish mind because the sacrifice is dead. And that's the point. We want the blood from the sacrifice to atone for the sins, as Leviticus said to us. So Paul, once again, takes a foundational term, a foundational aspect of what it means to worship God, especially in the Jewish mind, the idea of a sacrifice. And he says it's no longer a dead sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. This means then that every part of our physical human bodies we have to offer up to the Lord Jesus Christ in service to him instead of sin. Instead of offering it up to sin. All our words, all our thoughts, all our deeds, all of ourselves, our whole self, our whole person is now supposed to be offered up as an ongoing living sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ in light of the mercies of God, of what he has done for us by saving us. And he tells us what that will look like, not only living, right, but he also says it's holy, it's acceptable to God. Holiness is the idea, the concept of being set apart, different. And so we are, we are different than sin. We are set apart from sin. The sacrifice must be pure. It must be holy. And then he says it is your spiritual worship, which is a not helpful translation choice here in the ESV. The word is not spiritual. And some of you have a footnote down there that explains it. Some of you might say reasonable service or something like that. That gets us closer here because the, the word is not spiritual. The word is, is logikos, which is, which is logical, which is reasonable, which is true. CSB I like better here. It says it this way. Therefore, see, so he puts the nice big fat therefore up front. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is what you should be doing because of what God has done for you. 
This is your reasonable service. This is logical. This makes sense. And so put the pieces together here. Paul is saying, because God saved you by his mercy, shouldn't you then give your whole lives to him in holiness? That would be the reasonable thing to do, wouldn't it? God saved you out of his mercy. He plucked you from the fires of hell. And there's a true way to worship him. There's a logical and reasonable way to worship him. And that is to live for him. But we live for him by offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. Or another way to say it on the flip side is to die to sin. To die to self. And so I'll say the first point this way. We are saved to die to self. We are saved to die to self. First thing that Paul tells us about how to live a life, right, that is one of worship. We are saved to die to self. It has often been noted that the real problem with a living sacrifice is that it's still alive. And so it's going to want to crawl off the altar. And so you're going to have to go and get it and drag it back and put it back on the altar. Isn't that a picture of our sin? Our sin is going to want to always go. It's never, just sometimes feels like it's never dead, right? It's just like, where did you go? I just put you on the altar and it's walking down the road. It's like that game on the boardwalk down the shore, you know, the whack-a-mole. It just, you keep whacking these things and another sin pops up and another sin pops up. Dying to ourselves is a living sacrifice, is one of the core aspects of being a Christian church. You can't be a faithful Christian without dying to yourself, without meaning dying to sin within yourself. Jesus referred to this famously as taking up your cross. In Matthew 16, starting in verse 24, he says this, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the essence of this life of sacrifice, a living sacrifice as a disciple. Paul in Colossians goes on an extended metaphor in Colossians chapter 3, 5 through 11. He says this, put to death, therefore, right? Another therefore, another time where Paul has just told them everything about the gospel in Colossians 1 and 2, and now in 3, he's going to give them the command what to do. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you once too walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here then is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says this is what we're supposed to be doing then. This is what he means putting to death these sins. Dying to ourselves. That's how we are to be a living sacrifice. This is the basic blocking and tackling of Christianity 101. We think, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to die to myself and be a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ. Put sin to death. As Paul said, the, the illustration of clothing, taking off sin and putting on righteousness. Church father John Chrysostom put it this way. How does the body become a sacrifice? Let the eye look on no evil thing. It has already become a sacrifice. Let the tongue say nothing filthy. 
and it has become an offering. Let your hand do nothing evil, and it has become a burnt offering. But even this is not enough, for we must also have good works. The hand must do alms, good deeds. The mouth must bless those who curse it, and the ears must find time to listen to the reading of Scripture. Sacrifice allows no unclean thing. It is the first fruits of all other actions. Again, why? Because God mercifully saved you. That's why. That's the big why governing all of this, right? How does my mic do that? How does this, how does this work? Calvin put it again this way, or Calvin can help us. Until men really apprehend how much they owe the mercy of God, they will never with a right feeling worship him, nor be effectually stimulated to fear and obey. Once, once, you, once you understand, once you try to apprehend what God has done for you, and unless you do that, you will never really be able with a right feeling to worship him or effectually be stimulated to fear and obey him. Our motivation to obey God is driven by what God has done for us, and it should be driven by gratitude and love. This is why a Christian living in sin is probably not a Christian. We can't be a Christian and be having sex with our boyfriend or girlfriend and be okay with it. We can't be a Christian and be okay with porn in our life and be okay with it. We can't be a gay Christian or a trans Christian and be okay with that and think that God is okay with that. We can't live lives characterized by greed or spite or scorn or hate. We're called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, pure, holy, acceptable to God. It's the idea, again, he didn't want the, the sick lambs and the oxen and the goats. He wanted the best. He gets the best, the purest, the first. So first step, if you are walking in any of those, is to repent and turn by the power of the Holy Spirit to grow and change. Mortify the sin and vivify the righteousness. Bring to life the righteousness in you and be an offering that is holy and pleasing to him. Do things like read The Mortification of Sin by Puritan John Owen. Read Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. Read Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Quick fact, I have an extra copy of Holiness by J.C. Ryle. So open challenge. I'll give it to the first person that wants it, and we can read it together. I have it all ready for you. But strap in. It's a good one. Buckle up. This is the basics of the Christian life, church. It's a war. It's a war against sin in our own hearts, our own bodies, and so we sacrifice them continually. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Paul writes to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We want to be able to look at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on Judgment Day with a clear conscience and say, I know you saved me by your mercy and by your grace. And I did my best to be a living sacrifice for you because of that. We don't do this as isolated humans. We live in society. We're surrounded by rebellion against God. And we have to resist being influenced by all the sin that is around us. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at the next verse in verse 2. Next commands. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Paul drops a couple more commands here. These are imperatives. The negative command, do not be conformed to the world. And then the positive command, but be transformed or be being transformed. It's in that continuous voice. Again, maybe I'd say a little better here is do not be conformed, not necessarily to this world, but to this age. Once again, I like CSB in this verse. It says it this way. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Our word for conformed means the idea, of course, of being shaped to something, like in a mold. Obviously, the world around us being in rebellion against God and his law. So the command is not to have your worldview shaped and molded by the sinful world around you, by the sinful age around you. And it's really important to make the distinction, I think, between world and age, because legalism says that Christians can't be in the world, that we're afraid of the world. Well, the only problem is we live in the world. And so we have to wear clothes, and we have to drive cars, and we have to eat food, and we have to interact with culture. But we're told not to be conformed to that age. And so a legalist would see a term like the world and go, ah, that's why we're not supposed to be in the world. Well, we are in the world, but we're not supposed to be conformed to the ideas of this age. And so if we're not supposed to be conformed, that you tell us he's, he's commanded what we're not to do, what are we commanded to do? He says, be transformed. And our word here, metamorphal, reminds us of something. We got our word metamorphosis from that. The idea of a caterpillar, caterpillar, I don't know why I'm having trouble with my words today, caterpillar being transformed into a beautiful butterfly. The process of what happens to us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Right? The old is dead. That old miserable caterpillar is dead. And now we become in Christ this beautiful butterfly, a new creation in Christ. And how does that happen? Well, it happens, as our text tells us, through the renewal of our minds. Our minds, not being conformed to the worldview of the age and rebellion against God, now we're transformed by conforming our minds, renewing our minds to what? This worldview. God's word. This is how we renew our minds. This is how it happens. And so it's a biblical worldview. And how does that process work? Paul says, by testing. Yay, by testing. Literally, this means to be discerning, like someone who would gauge the purity of metals, one metal from another, or how valuable a metal would be. Be discerning, like someone who judges the quality and purity of things, like metals. We continue to compare the bankrupt and corrupt worldview of this age to the perfect, holy goodness of the worldview that is in the Bible here. We will grow in spiritual maturity and depth and wisdom, the more that we conform ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, to not the wisdom of the sage, but to the wisdom of God's world, God's word and the biblical worldview. This isn't a retreat from the world, again, we're not saying that, but this is a biblical engagement with the world. This is not being in sync with the worldview of this age, but rather being out of sync with sin. And so I'll say it this way, our second point. We are saved to be in sync with the biblical worldview. 
We are saved to be in sync with the biblical worldview. Biblical worldview and, and doing that essentially means two things. Number one, you actually know the biblical worldview. And number two, you can actually easily then identify any and all counterfeits against the biblical worldview and fight against us. Look at the first one. We actually know the biblical worldview. How do we do that? This is really complicated. I'll try and break it down as simple as I possibly can. Okay, how do we know the biblical worldview? Get ready. This is going to be very difficult. You need to read the Bible. (laughs) Thank you for laughing at that. We need to read the Bible. We need to know the Bible. The shocking statistics are that the average Christian has not read the entire Bible. I know that. And if you're, you're one of them, I'm not, I'm not hating on you. I'm just telling you, you got to read your Bible. we got to know the biblical worldview. Because here's also what happens. A Christian sees something in conformity to the age that they don't like, and they go raging off into battle with the flag of God's word that they've never read before. And then they misrepresent us. And then the arguments get all construed, and the world doesn't have an idea of what we truly stand for or why. Do not be conformed to the wisdom of this age. Be transformed by this. First, we've got to know this. The average Christian has not read the whole Bible. Don't be average, Highlands Bible Church. Please. This is where we get Christians posting all kinds of crazy theology about Israel or end times or whatever. And it's, it's off from a biblical worldview. So much damage has been done by Christians who run off into battle again to try and fight these things without a biblical worldview. So we've got to know the Bible. We've got to know the biblical worldview. But second, and see how this works, only after knowing the Bible, then will you be able to tell what is counterfeit. We don't study what's counterfeit. We study the real thing. And therefore, when we see something, a different wisdom, a different worldview, we are then easily able to spot that is not what God says. That is not the biblical worldview. I will not be conformed to that. I will be transformed by this. Do we know why love is love is not an actual worldview that makes any sense? Do we know why we can't give in and use someone's preferred pronouns? Do we know why we must fight against the politics that are waging a full-on war against parental rights? Do we understand why? Do we understand this and how those things then are counterfeit biblical and corrupt worldviews that we cannot be conformed to? Because we have to know this first, and then we have to be able to spot, or rather we will be able to spot the counterfeits. I'll add one more. Not only do we have to know the biblical worldview, and then therefore a second, we'll be able to spot counterfeits. Third, we have to be personally transformed in sanctification. And this is where a lot of people go to first, right? Well, that means, okay, my personal quiet time being personal. Okay, fine. Yes, that's in here too. But it's not maybe the most important thing in this. But it is true. So many times I have had pastoral conversations and we talk about God's will because then it says, then you will know what God's will, his good and perfect and pleasing will. You will know that so many times I've had pastoral conversations that say, Pastor Mike, I just don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. What does God want from me? And here it is. I'm also going to tell you God's will for all of your lives. So write this down. This is not necessarily prophetic. Here's what God wants from us. He wants holiness. 
He wants our sanctification. He wants you to be transformed by the biblical worldview. He wants you to grow mature. You don't believe me? Paul said it in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God for you, colon, your sanctification. And then he goes on to talk about sexuality in that, in that command. The first place that we probably need sanctification is in our sexuality. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. In other words, don't try to find a spouse, a career, a place to live until you've found a pattern of killing sin and growing in sanctification in your actual life. Because here's how this works. Just like when we know the word of God, we're able to spot counterfeits, right? When we know the, will, when we know the word of God, then we are sharpened. Then we are more discerning. Then we can look at situations and say, yes, that is the will of God for my life because it will build me up in my sanctification. Then and only then will we have our spiritual spidey senses dialed in tight to make those big decisions. Yes, this is a good career. Yes, this person will be a good and godly spouse. Yes, this is a good place to live. Yes, this is a good church to invest in and serve and commit to membership. Yes, these are solid friends in which I will share myself and be known and invest in their lives. And once again, why? Because it all comes through testing. The more we exercise our biblical discernment, the sharper we get. The author of Hebrews says this, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So there's little trials that we get. See, this is where God is then training us. This is where God is sharpening us. This is where God is growing us so that we grow in our discernment so that we can know and tell what the good and perfect and pleasing will of God is. And that comes through testing. When we have those decisions, we know the Bible. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we rely on him to make those decisions, right? Because why? We're not conformed to the pattern of this world. We are transformed through the renewing of our mind, through a biblical worldview. All of these then come together in service and how we serve others in the church. And that's where Paul wraps up. Look at verse 3 of Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and the individual members one of another. Once again, Paul urges people not to think too highly of themselves. He's been doing that to the Gentiles these last couple weeks as we rounded out chapter 11. He's like, hey, Gentiles, don't be arrogant about those branches that were snapped off. Don't treat them any differently. Don't be arrogant because you were saved and some of them were not. The temptation here should be obvious. We were saved through nothing of our own. Once again, the temptation is to think, wow, I must be special. God saved me. God chose me. I am one of the elect. That He says, don't do that. Don't think, of, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Paul warns against spiritual pride, and especially spiritual pride in the church. And rather, he says, you should think of yourselves with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that you have obtained. And here's the truth. No one's arrived. 
We are all sanctifying works in progress. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that as far as we think we may have come, we still have a long way to go before we look like Jesus Christ. And indeed, it will not be finished until we are standing before him one day. We all are works in progress. And so we, we think of ourselves with humility is the big word. To the measure of faith and spiritual maturity that God has granted us, we are all being sanctified. And Paul says it is right and good to keep that in the forefront of your minds. And where is the context of all this? In verse 4, he talks about one body being many members. In other words, the church. Our body, or one body, is a reference to the church. And the church is made up of many members, just like the human body has many different parts. And all those members have different roles. We have head and hands and legs and feet. All of those things are different parts and they have different roles. Our church is made up then of different people, different members who have different roles and different gifts, all with different functions. And he tells us that we all have gifts that we should be using then to serve the church. Look at verse 6 as he details some of them. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving to the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul's basically saying in all of that fancy language there, he says, you all have been given gifts, use them in the church. Use them. You've been given the gift of teaching, teach. You've been given the gift of serving, serve. If you're an exhorter, exhort. If you've given, been given the, the spirit of generosity, be generous. Lead with zeal. If you're going to do an act of mercy, do it. And do it with cheerfulness. We all have different gifts and we all need to be serving in the church. One theologian famously said that service is not an option. After salvation, service is not an option. We serve, though, with the measure of faith and maturity that we've achieved. The church, then, is its members. One body, many members, each serving for their own purposes. And then Paul gives us seven spiritual gifts which we can use to serve the church. Let's look at each of them. First, he starts with prophecy. Which right away, we've got to pump the brakes on and define because there's a ton of false prophecy and a ton of misunderstanding in the evangelical church. And so let's look at prophecy quickly. Boy, nothing wants to work today. <laughs> if you are going to define prophecy as, thus saith the Lord, that gift is gone. That gift has ceased. And we have everything that the Lord wants us to know right here. The office of a prophet has been closed because there are no more prophets. There are no more apostles. We have God's written word, which Hebrew tells us is more sure than even what they saw at the Mount of Transfiguration with their own eyes. So if we're going to say, God says this, if anybody says, God told me, duck, right? If anybody says, God told me this, okay, well, probably not maybe. Let's talk about what that means. We have the Bible, and it's closed. Someone said, if you want to hear what God has to say, read the Bible. If you want to hear his voice out loud, read the Bible out loud. <laughs> but if you define prophecy as applying this word of God specifically to someone's life with our friends, discernment and wisdom, now we're talking. 
Now that's prophet. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that we prophesy now in part. So thus saith the Lord is not going to carry the weight. So if I cannot give any extra biblical revelation, there's no more direct downloads. I can't stand before you and say, God told me something different that's not in here. Eh, elders will fire me immediately, and they should, right? But if we take a section of scripture and we apply it through discernment and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and we speak that scripture in application to someone's life, we can therefore speak, speak prophetically into his life. It's application of scripture. It's truth delivered in the word of God. And he says, that is in proportion or measure, how does he say it? In proportion to our faith. And this is a different kind of definition of faith than the first one. It's, it's not the measure of our maturity, but he says it's in proportion. You have to compare it to the faith. And he's kind of using the faith with a capital T and a capital F like Jude does. The faith that was once delivered for the saints. In other words, everything we know about life and godliness through the Bible. The faith. Our, our, our doctrine. The faith. God's word. The gospel. Whatever you're going to say as, a, as prophetically better be in, in proportion to that. Westminster clears it up too. It says, by faith or by this faith... A Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein. You're not speaking on your own authority. You're speaking in the authority of God's word according to the faith. So first, prophecy. We speak God's word, we interpret it, we apply it rightly to a situation. And Paul says, if you're going to do that in the church, do it. Do it. Speak to somebody. Encourage somebody. When you're in small group, talk about it. How does this apply to you? When you have a friend who's in a situation, bring the word of God to bear on that situation. And let's see what other gifts Paul has. Look at the, the other gifts. Look at verse 7. In service, in our serving, to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So the second gift he mentions is serving. This word for service is the one where we get our word deacon, where it refers to those who literally serve the church in acts of serving stuff. Taking care of babies, serving food, cutting bagels, cleaning toilets, greeting people. If you have the gift of service, which I'm pretty sure everybody does, <laughs> Paul says, do it. Serve. Serve the church. If you have the gift of service, serve. Serve the church. Third, he says, we are to serve in teaching, specifically, of course, teaching the word of God. And teaching is a gift that not everyone has, but needs to be verified by the elders of the church. And he says, but if you have the gift of teaching, teach. Some of you all don't know that you have the gift of teaching until somebody like me pokes you and asks you to do it. And then we see. Fourth, he says, we're serving in exhortation, meaning encouraging, challenging someone, again, through the word of God. This is actually the same word he uses in 12.1, where he says, I appeal to you. You should have said, I exhort to you. Fifth, we see we're to serve in contributing, specifically in generosity. This could be giving financially, which you guys are great at, or it could be generous with your time and your resources. This is, you're generous? Do it. You want to give? Give. Serve. Sixth, we are encouraged to serve in leading. Every church needs good leaders, men and women to serve as deacons, men to serve as elders. If you have the gift of leadership, if you've been vetted by the elders of the church, serve, do it, pursue. 
And lastly, we're encouraged to serve in acts of mercy. This means acts of caring. Cards, texts, caring for the sick, visitation, caring for the elderly, acts of service like rides or cleaning or physical labor and all of that stuff that everybody can do. If you're going to have acts of mercy, do so cheerfully. Do it, he says. Paul gives seven gifts that therefore we should be serving with in the church. And I hope you see the point here. We are not saved to sit on the sidelines. We are saved, third point, to serve the church. We are saved to serve the church. The reality is here again, because of the mercy of God and salvation, we've all been given the Holy Spirit, and therefore we've all been given spiritual gifts of some kind. Paul talks about serving with our spiritual gifts in the church. And sometimes we hear a sermon like this, and it's like, cool, I'm going to ride off into the sunset and start a ministry and do something and serve somewhere. Well, Paul says, how about the local church? That's where to start. The body of Christ. Elsewhere, you might be thinking of what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, using the extended metaphor of the body and its parts. He says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. He says, hey, uh, I don't want you to be uninformed. It's a good, a good way to say to somebody, hey, um, you need to know this. <laughs> I do not want you to be uninformed. You know when you were pagans, you were led astray to, astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one is speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He says that to say the Holy Spirit is living and active in every believer's life. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the Spirit and the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. The ability to distinguish between spirits, other kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The church has been given gifts. We need to serve in the church with our gifts. That's why we're saved. He says, don't be uninformed here, people. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You're no longer pagans. Therefore, use the gifts to serve the church. Dr. Tom Schreiner says, believers who live wholly for God are committed to community. They do not live for and unto themselves any longer, but they become involved with the new people of God and minister to the needs of others with the gifts granted to them by God. So the obvious application here is, where are you serving in the church with the gifts that God has given you? Paul says service is not an option. And before I delve into the obvious guilt trip to serve in church more, let me say this. Thank you, because we have some fantastic servants here. We have people that serve faithfully and quietly here. And so thank you for that. You do so much. But now on to the obvious guilt trip. We have many needs. We have many open spots to be filled. If you aren't a member, you can clean up, you can lock up, you can... Be a kid wrangler downstairs after a background check. You could be a tech person, a slide clicker, a live stream camera operator. But if you're a member, we need deacons this year. We need a deacon of caring. We need a deacon of fellowship. We need care group leaders, Bible study leaders. We need 
new kids, our kids' teachers downstairs. We need worship team members. We need more under-shepherds. As guess what? We have so many more members. All of these things. We need people to think up of new ways to serve others. We need people to start new care groups and start new Bible studies and minister to the people. Because the church is the place where you serve with your gifts. And so we are saved then to serve in the church. Where does all this leave us? I want to end where we started, the big why. Jump back to verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. The motivation for everything we've been talking about this morning is the mercy of God in saving our souls through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we're called to offer our lives as living sacrifices to him because he gave his son to forgive our sins. He plucked us from an eternal fire in hell and gave us a new life, a new heart. Paul says that's mercy. Therefore, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. How can we do that? What are we specifically called to do? The big idea this morning is really just everything I've been talking about. We die to self. We're in sync with the biblical worldview, and we serve the church. We are called to die to self, right? John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Love God with everything we have and love others as much as we love ourselves. We die to self, as Jesus said, because it's worth it. The basics of what we're called to do as Christians, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and then following Jesus Christ. And that, by nature, is going to be denying ourselves. And so ask yourself, where are you killing sin? Where are you putting your needs behind the needs of others? Where are you killing spiritual pride? We're also saved to be in sync with the biblical worldview. He says, do not be conformed to this age. We have to know the biblical worldview. And then by knowing the biblical worldview, we're able to spot the counterfeits of them. And third, of course, we have to be transformed personally in our own lives. We have to know our Bibles, and instead of getting sucked into the, biblical, the, the secular worldview, right, we know the biblical worldview cold. And lastly, of course, we're saved to serve the church. Think, where am I serving? How am I serving others? Am I speaking God's word into their lives? Am I serving in the little ways in the church? Do I have the gift of teaching? Men, are we aspiring to leadership and membership before that? What's stopping us from pursuing that? Are we challenging each other? Are we exhorting each other? Are we generous? Are we merciful? Church, we need to fan into flame these gifts that God has given each one of us through the Holy Spirit and serve each other in the church. Why would we do anything? Why would we do any of this? Because it's the only reasonable thing to do based on what God has done for us in his mercy. Father, thank you for this word, this, this clear, convicting word to all of us. And now that we see, based on the mercy that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, how we are to live, how we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. You call us to not be conformed to this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that then, by discernment and testing, we will be able to tell what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. I pray that we would see that in all of our lives in ever-increasing sharpness of focus, that we would be putting sin to death in our personal lives, that we would understand 
the rock-solid foundation of the Bible, that we would be able to, with a spirit-guided eye, look at the spirit of this age and be able to see what is not from you. And Father, I do thank you so much for the faithful servants we have at Highlands Bible Church. But I pray that you would draw others into membership. I pray that you would draw others into service here in a variety of ways. We do pray for, Lord, you to fill the ranks of what we need in many ways with saints that are spirit-empowered, with gratitude in their hearts for what Jesus has done for them. And Lord, would you be glorified as we give our lives to you for it is the only reasonable thing that we can do. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.